Hello and welcome to Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny, and I am here broadcasting high above Dongcheng District in Beijing in a time of COVID weirdness. Across town is my co-host David Moser, who had invited me to his home today to tape the podcast. But since David is in relative proximity to a COVID hotspot in Beijing, and I didn't feel like spending another 17 days sitting on my couch watching Netflix, we're doing this remotely. David, how you doing? Is your code still green? <laughs> my code is still green. Yeah, I thought this podcast is good to put a timestamp on it because uh, it is. Uh, you are out of quarantine, and the last time we talked, you were in the middle of it, in the lockdown. And you are now out, and I am now, as you as you imply, sort of pre-lockdown pre now, uh, I'm sad to say. And also, it's, uh, I think, about one month and three weeks into the Ukraine war, the invasion. So all of these things proceeding apace, all causes for stress and alarm. Yeah, maybe we can find some humor and positivity in all of this in today's podcast. Right. I'm post-lockdown. David, you are pre-lockdown. I think we need to talk to somebody who is like locked down in the middle of the thick of it down in Shanghai. And it's also a great excuse to get our friend Andrew Field on the podcast. For those of you who don't know, Andrew, Andrew Field's an associate professor of Chinese history at Duke Kunshan University. He's been based in Shanghai for as long as anyone I know in Shanghai. He's taught Chinese history on three continents. He has directed study abroad programs for many universities. So, Andrew, help us out. Where in the spectrum of lockdowns are you right now? First of all, I'm not in Shanghai. I'm in Quinshan. So I'm, I'm on the outskirts of Shanghai. Uh, my family, my wife and daughters are in the middle of Shanghai. We live in Midtown, uh, basically in the center of the city in an apartment complex, which has been totally locked down since the 1st of April. I have other friends in other parts of Shanghai, like in the Pudong, uh, many friends and colleagues who have been locked down for much longer than that. And when we say locked down, we're talking confined to their apartments. So they can't even go outside to walk the dog. Um, that's how locked down millions of people are in Shanghai right now. Like last month, I was I was pitching and whining about our lockdown situation, which was annoying and, and inconvenient. But we were at least allowed out of our building into the kind of yard, the community yard. So we could walk our dog. We could get exercise because we were one compound lockdown in a district that was mostly opened. We had deliveries coming in on a regular basis, takeout, groceries, but this is a totally different situation for the people in Shanghai right now. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Complete immobilization. And it's happened in phases, but the, the movement has been towards further and further restriction. I should say that as of now, some communities in Shanghai are being allowed uh, to have limited movement in their neighborhoods. Um, it, it just uh, depends on the community and whether everybody has tested negative in that community. And so there is some limited movement right now for some people in Shanghai, but it's still extremely limited. We're talking, you know, they can go into their compound, they can walk outdoors as long as in, they're in their compound and maybe some limited movement on streets in their neighborhoods. But all the reports I'm getting from friends and colleagues is that um, the neighborhoods are completely empty. The streets are completely empty. No stores are open. Um, so right now it's only emergency essential services. 
So yeah, it's a, it's really a, it's an amazing situation. It's pretty unique. I think it's pretty unique in in world history to have a city of 25 million people that completely immobilized. So we're going through a very unique historical moment in the history of Shanghai, me being a Shanghai historian, that's of great interest. Um, but also, I think in the history of world cities, I can't think of any case like this. Um, and we and the other thing is we don't know when this is going to end. It, it just seems to have a long tail. And we don't know when people are going to be freed or whether the, the policy is going to shift. Um, but I do think that we are in a threshold moment here in China in terms of the way the government has been dealing with the virus. I wanted to talk a little bit about that as well, because um, because we've all been here in China. I mean, I, I was away for six months um, starting in February 2020. I took my daughters to the USA and we sheltered um, in Massachusetts, my home state, for six months. And then we came back here in September of 2020. So I've been living here ever since then. Um, so I think, you know, it is important to put this current lockdown in the context of China's ongoing policies towards COVID and preventing the spread of the virus. This is very basic, uh, but just for reference sake, uh, uh, and I haven't kept up with it, so that's the reason I'd like to know a little bit. I mean, I thought the original plan was to divide the city into, into two parts and do a phased lockdown and, and to, to sort of lessen the pain. What's the status of that? Well, that did happen. So first, um, the Pudong area. So Shanghai is divided into two big areas. There's the Pudong, which is east of the Huangpu River. Huangpu River is the main river running through Shanghai. So you have the, the Pudong area to the east and south of the river. And then you have the Pusi or west of the Huangpu River on the other side. Um, so there was a phased lockdown, but it's a little more complicated than that because some neighborhoods in Pudong have been locked down for several weeks now. So, yeah, Pudong was locked down first, and then a few days later, Pusi was locked down. But the uh, time frame for those lockdowns that the government initially announced has been indefinitely extended because they've been finding so many cases. That's why uh, basically the whole city is, is, is now still under lockdown. But like I said, some communities have a little bit more freedom right now. So there wasn't much alle pain alleviation. <laughs> it was just a short uh, phase in which there, there was a, a little bit of a asymmetric lockdown situation. So right now, um, you're, in, you're, in, you're in Kunshan, so, but that's also in, in full lockdown, like all the, the uh, satellite you know, suburbs of Shanghai are also in lockdown or what? Yeah, it's not as extreme as the Shanghai lockdown, but this also happened in phases. It happened in some respects gradually, in other respects quite suddenly. Uh, but this has been ongoing for months. Um, there have been, you know, lockdowns in neighborhoods. There have been shutdowns of highways for months now between Kunshan. See, Kunshan is a smaller city that's wedged in between Suzhou and Shanghai. So Shanghai, 25 million. Suzhou, I don't know, 6 million, something like that. Smaller city. And then Kunshan with, it depends on how you count it, but 1 to 2 million people. Um, is, for, by Chinese standards, a smaller city. 
Um, so we've been kind of caught in between these two larger cities and their different phases of shutdowns and lockdowns. And it's been a bit of a mess for the past few months. But Quinchan is not. So we, we are locked down by district and neighborhood. In the area that I'm in, I, I, I can walk around in my community which is a huge difference from what people in Shanghai are experiencing now. I can actually go outside, I can walk my dog, I can even cycle around, but I can't drive to another area. So there are roadblocks everywhere. Um, we are restricted in our ability to drive around uh, this part of the city. I definitely cannot get to the area where the university is uh, to the north of my, of my part of Quinshan. Um, and I can't get to the major shopping centers, so I'm uh, I'm running out of pickles and savory meats and all those wonderful things, cheeses, all the wonderful things that we barbarians need to survive. Uh, my stocks are running low, but I but I'm okay for local you know local produce. Um, there are fresh fruits and vegetables, although. It seems the only fruit I can find in the local shops these days are bananas, but I, I can find some fresh vegetables and eggs. And I do have a big bag of rice, so I'm sure that I will survive the lockdown, uh, but I may be losing some of my creature comforts along the way. There's been, some, there's been some talk that the central government has been a little bit unhappy with the Shanghai leadership in the last couple of weeks, and that there may be some changes afoot in the municipality down there. What do you think? I mean, I think that's already been happening, um, but I, I, I haven't been following that shift that closely. I, I do think that, you know, obviously Shanghai, the city was not prepared for the rapidity of the spread of the virus. And, and I think it's fair to say that uh, this phase of the virus has been much more insidious, although not probably not as um, destructive uh, in terms of, you know, its health consequences, but it's been much more insidious, hard to detect. Um, and so it seems to be transmitting very rapidly. You know, the, the count of uh, people testing positive, though asymptotic, kept rising for a while, well above 20,000 per day, I believe. Now I think it's peaked. It This information might be a day old and I haven't seen the latest data, but it does seem that we may be reaching a turning point. And one thing that I have noticed, uh, because I've been following all the WeChat groups, right? WeChat is how we communicate here in China. And it's an amazing tool. Um, and you have groups large and small composed of just about anybody from your, you know, your neighborhood, uh, where you live into your networks of colleagues, to friends, to family, and so forth. And then all these WeChat groups, one thing I've noticed is that the level of, of panic has gone down somewhat. And there's, there's still plenty of grumbling, but it seems that in terms of food supply and other essential needs, people are doing a little bit better. There's a little bit less uh, urgency in the tone of the messages that I'm seeing right now. I think that the government recognized that they did need to uh, keep, uh, you know, supplying some essential supplies to all of the, the residences and neighborhoods. The, the fundamental problem, as I understand it, is uh, distribution. Um, it's what they're calling the, f the final 100 meters problem, which is getting, getting food to districts and neighborhoods 
is possible, but getting it to all of the uh, residences, all of the people who are locked in their apartments has proven much more difficult logistically. And it's put a great amount of strain on the essential workers. And here, I think there are some parallels with what we experienced in America two years ago. It's really the essential workers who bear the brunt of this. You know, people in their apartments can rightfully uh, complain about their immobility, but it's these essential workers who are trying to supply a city of 25 million people um, with everything they need to survive. That Those are the people who are really bearing the burden, and especially the, the uh, neighborhood workers, the people who are staffing the different communities who have to get these supplies the last 100 meters to all the families. Shanghai is an incredibly dense city. It's very different to Beijing. You know, Beijing is a horizontal city. It's a very large, it's in a large plain. Um, the buildings are generally not that high. Communities are fairly spread out. Shanghai is very concentrated, a lot of high rises, um, thousands of families living in each community. So you can imagine the logistical hurdles um, that are needed to um, keep everybody supplied with essential goods. Andrew, uh, I've speaking. You spoke of WeChat. I've heard some stories, some, and I've actually seen them on WeChat. Actually, uh, of uh, the people sort of using the platform to establish kind of informal survival groups, where they communicate with the the uh, distributors or the vendors or the grocers directly, and get get these little uh, you know special groups for each compound or for a select group of people that bypasses the 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 usual. Uh, WeChat platform uh, that you would use to, to go through these large corporations and set up little mini WeChat groups to, to get goods and services sort of underground or in the, it's not exactly a black market, but it's kind of a gray market. Could you, do you know anything about that? And could you expand on that? Because that also seems something that's very different from the American situation, because we have no such equivalent like we, WeChat. Yeah, that's right. I mean, first of all, to put it, you know, to, to um, make that comparison, when I was in the United States two years ago, and so, we had kind of a similar situation, although this, this was in the very early phase of the pandemic. And so there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty. I do remember how <clears throat> by the end of March, all of the local supermarkets were just being um, raided and shelves were emptying of, I guess, what Americans thought were essential goods like pasta and spaghetti sauce and, and meats and, of course, toilet paper. Um, here, what happened just prior to the lockdowns was um, people went out and bought as much as many vegetables as they could, um, which tells you something about the differences between Chinese and American society. <laughs> and our, di our respective diets and values. But, um, you know, since the lockdown, be because people were not prepared for the lockdown to be extended for several weeks, supplies were running out. So there was an initial, you know, you could say an initial panic for sure um, amongst uh, residents in Shanghai who were worried about running out of, of their supplies of food. Now, the government has made an effort to distribute food supplies. So there are, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, people getting batches of vegetables, fresh vegetables and so on. But people have also resorted to um, setting up these WeChat networks and just using WeChat as a tool to do bulk purchasing. So that's happening a lot in, in my neighborhood in Shanghai, where my family is living. Uh, the resident, partly because 
our our community has a lot of foreigners and their food needs are different, right? And so um, they are looking for kinds of food that uh, maybe the government won't be <laughs> distributing to their doorstep. And so that's been kind of stabilizing over time and it's become a more, I think, reliable, although still not entirely reliable. I still see uh, people posting on WeChat that they tried to purchase something and it didn't come through. The delivery didn't come through. But I, but like I said, I think that the deliveries have been getting a little bit easier over the past few days. That's my impression. There does seem to be a, a kind of a, a, wide, a wide range of situations going on across Shanghai in terms of what people are experiencing, as you, as you pointed out. I think on, on one end, especially in the beginning, you had a lot of people who were at first concerned about the inconvenience of it all. Not that we're running out of food, we're just running out of food that we like. Um, it's been not a particularly healthy emotion, but to watch some well-known Twitter figures in Shanghai, including a few who are famous for their deep-throated, is that a word? Hmm, might be support of the Chinese Chinese government suddenly freaking out because they're no longer able to access organic blueberries. You know, pandemic has hit. My smoothie game has also taken a hit. But on the other hand, as you pointed out, there are a lot of people for whom food insecurity has become, could, did become, you know, reality. And thinking about the fresh vegetables, one thing I, I mean, especially for older folks, and this is true in Beijing, I'm, I'm sure it's true in Shanghai, so many of the, the people in my neighborhood are a little bit older, they shop by the meal. They buy the ingredients for lunch at like 10 o'clock in the morning. They cook lunch, they eat lunch, they go take a nap, and then at three or four o'clock, they go out and they buy the ingredients for dinner. You know, you think about the average American home where huge freezers and pantries and a lot of processed food and food that's designed to survive Armageddon. But if you're, but if, if somebody's, you know, customary diet, customary food choices involve perishables, this is a, you know, and all you have at home are the absolute essentials like oil, salt, rice, flour, that kind of thing. I mean, this could really leave some populations quite vulnerable, particularly older people and older people who might not be as plugged into some of these social media networks that people are using to help mitigate the effects of the, uh, of the lockdown. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. You know, there's no question that this has been a very, very serious problem um, for for everybody uh, in the city. Like I said, you know, some people were a bit more prepared, and I think I think a lot of Shanghainese people did anticipate that the lockdown would go much longer than than had initially been planned. But other people were really caught unawares, and and I think it has the elderly have been. Uh, particularly vulnerable in this situation, as well as the more disadvantaged families. So again, I think there are some parallels to the way things went down in the United States a couple of years ago when when this began. Of course, in the U.S., we, we were not um, re- confined to our homes. So that was a big difference. That's something that would not be possible in America given our cultural differences, but also the way that housing is organized in the U.S. It's just so different. Despite the fact that China has faced all these problems and, and struggles in the in the COVID epidemic era, just like we did, there's been this longstanding kind of stereotype, or I guess I should say of some uh, a confirmation among, among some people of, of the stereotype of Chinese being more collectivist and the Westerners being more individualistic. And thus, the, the you know the Chinese uh, sort of buckle down and go along with them with all the mandates, make do with what they have, and uh, kind of work together. 
uh, Jeremiah and I talked about that a little bit on the last podcast, that you, know, that you do see that sort of spirit here. But it seems like there's been a phase shift uh, with Shanghai. And I think probably some of the reasons are what you just pointed out, the differences in other cities' situations. Of course, in Wuhan, it was a new thing, and it was a very scary thing, and so it was almost a wartime situation. Nowadays, people are more used to it. Do you think Shanghai is a, is a, a special city in, in some other ways, M- much more, I don't know, more youthful, more cosmopolitan, perhaps more upper class more spoiled, less focused on on politics. Do you think there's some difference in the in the tenor and style and tone of Shanghai versus other cities that might make the sort of outrage and sort of you know violence, frankly, that we've seen uh, on some videos and and we've heard about? It's not only a different vi- it's not only a different virus. It's also a, a different, a very different city from some of the typical Chinese cities that we think of. This is something I keep thinking. Watching Shanghai from afar, I keep feeling like it's the kind of city where people have not experienced the kind of draconian measures that the government has employed in a lot of other cities where people aren't necessarily as plugged in or perhaps as willing to speak out. And it also occurs to me that of all the cities I've ever been to in China, the people of Shanghai are the city that has their bullshit filter set on the highest possible setting. Not to say that they're not patriotic, not to say that they don't love the party, all that good stuff. But I also have a feeling that a lot of them are perhaps a little bit less uh, susceptible to, you know, rah, 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 this is all going to be fine. And people are like, yeah, yep, that's great. Where's my vegetables? I mean, I think that everybody has been going along with the measures and the policies up until now. You know, and I th- and, I, and I think that by and large people in China are very concerned about the spread of the virus and they're very willing to make sacrifices and to do what it takes. I think people didn't realize how extreme these sacrifices might become uh, in the case of Shanghai. I don't know enough about the other cities that have been locked down to know how things went down, you know, what what sort of restrictions they faced. I wish I knew more. But, you know, I think people are are certainly willing to they were willing to go along with even something as extreme as a lockdown of the two major areas of Shanghai, as long as there was a, a limit. Right. I think the the most frustrating thing has been has been that the the. The time frame just keeps getting extended. And whenever they find positive cases in any neighborhood, that means that the, the clock can, can kind of go back to zero and they still, that neighborhood may, or that community may have to continue lockdown for another two weeks. So that's very frustrating. And, you know, food is a universal need. It's one of Maslow's, right, needs in the hierarchy. <laughs> hierarchy. I mean, they may have housing, most of the people, and, and uh, shelter, but they but lacking food is obviously an extreme uh, situation. But I think that the the other things that have been uh, very serious concerns for our community and for many in Shanghai has been the uh, first, the separation uh, of children from parents. That has been a huge, huge concern that uh, the potential that uh, if a child tests positive and the parents test negative, the child gets sent to a quarantine center and the parents don't. That has been a huge, huge issue. And I think the government has made some adjustments or has claimed to make adjustments. It's hard to tell what's going on in reality to that policy to allow parents to accompany children. But also just the sending of people who test positive 
to these quarantine centers, which some have been calling internment camps. And the conditions in these centers that are getting reported, not a very fun place to spend a few weeks of your life. I'm surprised so many videos are circulating, to be honest. I mean, I, I, even, on Weib- even on Weibo and uh, on WeChat, you know, I'm, I think they're trying to clean them up, but I'm still seeing pretty routinely people posting some videos of their entry and their time in those um, centers. And it makeshift is probably the kindest thing I can say about how this, what they look like. This has been a headache for the government. I've kind of innocently, uh, uh, the other the other day I was waiting in line for my fifth PCR test of the week, I think. I mean, virtually every other day. And I was just talking to my wife uh, on WeChat, you know, but actually, no, it was on another platform, I think. But I just put the phone up and was showing her kind of what it looked like. And immediately two people ran up to me and were very, very freaked out. You know, saying, no, you can't take any photos of, or videos of anything. It's just even people just waiting in line. WeChat is a great tool, and it's been a savior, uh, you know, in a lot of ways. But it's also, uh, this stage of the game for the government is a big headache because people, those things are going to spread, and there's no way they can stop it. Yeah, and so sharing information about those kind of things has been, um, you know, that's that's just been a constant stream of anxiety, I think, for people. Um, is just the possibility possibility of getting sent to a quarantine center and then what happens to your children what happens to your pets you know if you get sent to a center what happens to your pets has that's right that's right a lesser issue than children of course but uh but it's still an yeah, issue yeah. you know to, for for the millions of people who have pets in their care um so there are all kinds of there are all kinds of things going on that are, create a lot of anxiety um and just the constant testing people having to stand in line every day to get tested i think it's the only time people can leave their communities um, here in Quinshan, we're also getting tested on a daily basis. I have to go to the local Huesua in my neighborhood and stand in line to get tested. And I keep thinking, well, this is the most dangerous time of my day. And again, it kind of reminds me of when, when I was going to the supermarket in Massachusetts and that was the most dangerous time of my of my day was going to the supermarket and not knowing if anything was, or anybody was infected. Back then, though, the existential threat, I thought, was a lot different. I mean, back... Two years ago, um, the existential threat was finding yourself or finding your close family in a hospital on life care support. I mean, that was, the, you know, that was the nightmare. And and also, I do remember having kind of, when, when all of this started to happen in March of 2020, and it did feel like there was a total collapse of society and people started buying up guns. You know, I have to say personally, it's, I'm kind of happy that, that you can't go to a local gun shop here in China and, and stock up on your AK-45s. <laughs> so the existential threats are still there, but they're very different here. It's, I hear less fear about, oh, I'm, I'm going to get this and it's going to, I'm going to end up, you know, on a, uh, on oxygen, you know, whatever, uh, on a machine. It's more, oh, I'm, ch- I'm going to test positive. And I'm going to end up in a quarantine center with uh, sharing a toilet with a thousand other people for, for two weeks. I do think though, I, I, I've said this before, I don't know if people here are even remotely psychologically ready for what would be like if there was a a mass COVID outbreak across China. I think the fear factor has been, I mean, don't get me wrong, the, the fear factor is a very real one. This is a very serious disease. But the the level of which the, by which the government has discussed COVID, the consequences of getting COVID, the real danger to people's lives and health 
hasn't changed significantly since March 2020. It's, it's still at a kind of very high level of, of, of anxiety. And I think a lot of people have kind of caught on to that, which is why people are afraid of foreigners and they're afraid of catching it. And also, as you point to now, there's a whole social stigma to it. I mean, if you're the if you're the person that gets your compound locked down, right? I mean, you know, no one no one's going to blame you, but no one's going to be super happy with you either. And of course, uh, there have been I mean, Shanghai had to issue a, an order this week saying, you know, the the various management offices, neighborhood committees, and even the neighbors weren't allowed to prevent people from returning to their homes once they'd been shipped out of quarantine. So that kind of, the fact that they had to say that suggests that this is, you know, this is an issue. It occurs to me, kind of coming back to the, the, something you brought up, Andy, there doesn't seem to be a way out of this because either you can, you either don't have any deaths, which is good, right? But then it becomes harder and harder to justify keeping, you know, this many people this lockdown or you know you just kind of let it take its course you walk back from zero covid and you allow it to spread and then you run the risk of a mass outbreak which fortunately we hope wouldn't result in the kind of deaths we saw in the u.s or in other countries in 2020 but still it's going to cause a strain on people's lives and medical resources and it will also throw into question whether or not you know was it all worth it if we you know we went through all of this for 2 years scanning codes and writing our information and taking the tests and getting locked down and then we all got covid anyway doesn't seem a lot of good choices there if i'm in charge yeah i mean i but i think on on the one hand uh you know china is at a a great advantage because it ha- it is 2 years in the strains that we're experiencing now don't seem to be as as deadly as the ones that we saw two years ago. So it, do, it does seem, and I'm not a medical scientist, so <laughs> I'm just speaking from what I know and understand, but it does seem that the more the virus transmits over time, the more contagious it becomes, the less deadly. That just seems to be the law of viruses, right? But um, on the other hand, as you said, it's we're still at a point where the government certainly cannot allow this to just to spread without any containment. There's no question about that for a a large number of reasons. And and also the healthcare system in China just is not adequate. The uh, healthcare infrastructure in China is not up to the task. Uh, We saw how much the healthcare infrastructure of America suffered during the, especially the first few months um, in many other countries around the world. But I think that China has some advantages. And I I wanted to use a metaphor that I think you both as historians and uh, long-term Sinophiles would appreciate. Back when they were building those uh, gigantic ships uh, during the Ming Dynasty to the Zhenghe expeditions, which uh, sailed all the way to the coast of East Africa. Those ships were designed in a very ingenious way. If one part of the ship sprang a leak, they were compartmentalized so that the rest of the ship would be contained, would not suffer the leak. Um, So they could then go and fix that part without damage to the whole ship. And I think Chinese society is kind of organized in that way from, you know, what we've all been experienced here um, there's just such a severity to shutting down roads and highways and the entire train system and, you know, all the quarantine, just from from your neighborhood to your building, to your district, to the city you're living in, to the region you are in. There's just this sequence of shutdowns. 
And I think that's going to be the way that they contain this virus for quite some time. And it's definitely going to be disruptive to our lives here and to the economy, to the global economy it already is. Um, but it's just hard to imagine an alternative right now. I do think that the government is definitely working on revising its strategy, right, and learning from other, the experiences of other countries. That's a kind of interesting dynamic that's going on right now because one of the one of the compartmentalizations that goes on is is the propaganda. We don't have access to the conversations that happen at Zhongnanhai and various regions, so we don't really know, like we would in a, in, a, in another country, what the arguments for and against were and what 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 sorts of new strategies they were contemplating. So they have, I think, they have another advantage here, which is they certainly do not want to overtly announce that they have that the zero COVID mandate has been changed. But a lot of people are saying now I hear on social media that actually they have, they're already revising things. And, and even in Shanghai, that the strategy now isn't really zero, zero COVID. It's more like a, a, a very targeted kind of uh, suppression of the initial outbreak until it can be uh, assessed and all, all of the information in, act accordingly, do a, do a sort of controlled, as you say, controlled and compartmentalized approach, which would be uh, certainly more tolerant of asymptomatic cases or cases among younger people and so on. So, I mean, they may have moved, realistically moved beyond the zero COVID policy long ago, but they have to keep that as this sort of gold standard. Otherwise, there's egg on their face. And also, they might want to revert to that at some point when, if 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 the disease moves in another direction, Shanghai is maybe a test case. I have to say, people criticize the the hand, the government handling of it, and we know that, of course, one of the problems here is that heads roll. People are always looking for trying to find a scapegoat at at the top level and at the bottom level, and so you have to you have to feel a little bit of uh, empathy for the people implementing this. It it is it's an incredible project to shut down a city of this size with with the lost so many asymptomatic cases the the frustration increasing non-compliance certainly the political machinations and intrigue it's such an insanely complex project how can it be carried out without some major lapses and and glitches it's be, it would be impossible so yeah i think i think that's a good metaphor you use there i think that's something that china is able to do and because it has such control over the every every level of the bureaucracy from from the top down down to the to the the juehui at the community level that are all connected by a very rigid they can actually accomplish this much better than most other countries could and i i wanted to say as well just how incredibly amazing it is to be in the middle of this i again i'm kind of fortunate that i'm in a i'm in a home in quinshan that's quite large spacious in a very large neighborhood with not a lot of people surrounding me. I kind of deliberately chose this neighborhood for that reason. <laughs> but just seeing the levels of engagement and organization that go into the daily testing regime and everything that people are doing right now, it's it's pretty amazing. They are undergoing a transition. I, I think the big question is going to be, will people be allowed to um, quarantine in their own homes? I think that's that's the that to me I think is the crucial question right now because um, obviously sending people to the quarantine centers is not a good long term solution 
Um, not even a great, you know, obviously not a short-term solution as well. It's just, it, it's an emergency measure. can understand why the government wanted to remove people who were positive from the community. And I think people, people were willing to go along with that as, you know, I think people are generally willing to go along with anything that they feel keeps them safe as long as they're not victimized by it. Right. So I think people in China were kind of, as long as they weren't in Wuhan at that time, they were cheering Wuhan on like, go, go, keep locked down, keep, you know, make that sacrifice, you know, and now it's Shanghai's turn to suffer. Um, and the Shanghai people are people in Shanghai are not happy about it. And, you know, and things may be very different in Shanghai to previous lockdowns. Again, I don't I couldn't make exact comparisons, but but I'm sure that other people in China are cheering Shanghai on right now going, yeah, make that sacrifice so that we don't have to catch this nasty <laughs> virus. Um, take one for the team. Right. So that that seems to be the men, the mentality like. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a oh, I, um, I just hope it ends um, I'm hoping to be able to see my family again. I haven't, I haven't seen my, my wife and daughters for over a month now. Um, and I've basically been isolated in my home. I've been living completely alone with only my dog for company. It's good that I have a dog because at least I have somebody I can talk to besides myself. I see from your hair and beard, you're sort of looking more and more like the Unabomber. So, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, thinking about kind of turning like a, a, finding the silver lining in a lockdown situation as you're in your not quite cabin in the woods, but cabin in Quinshan with your dog. How you been keeping busy, Andy? <laughs> I, it's tough, you know, but I learned a lot from two years ago when I was sheltering. I mean, then I was with my parents and with my two daughters in our home in Massachusetts. And I learned a lot from that experience because we were basically secluded from anybody else. We couldn't, we couldn't have close social contact. We were in our little bubble, our shelter bubble. You learn about routine, and I think routines are what keep you going. So I have my daily routine, and I have my rules. So for one thing, I don't have any alcohol before dinner time. <laughs> Because I have a quite a well-stocked cocktail bar in my home, and I could be going down a very slippery slope right now. But the other thing that keeps me engaged is I, I am teaching online. That's another thing that we're fortunate as educators that we have the ability to continue to engage with our students online and with our colleagues. Um, so that keeps me going. I'm actually developing a new course right now about documenting city life. That's keeping me very busy in my spare moments, I try to play as much music as I can. I, I'm sitting here in my music studio. This is actually a, it was originally designed as a karaoke room by the landlord. So it's, it's got, uh, you know, soundproof walls and it's a really nice uh, music studio. So I have my keyboards and I have my guitars and I just, uh, you know, learning new songs and uh, uh, writing some songs now and then. So that keeps me occupied and and uh, my way, it's kind of my way of coping with the, the stress and the loneliness. And I also can share the songs with friends and, you know, post them on WeChat and Facebook. So um, that kind of keeps me going. That and the long walks outside with my dog, although it's raining pretty hard today. So I don't think we'll be getting our afternoon walk in. Maybe tell us very briefly, because we don't have that much time left, but about uh, the Duke Kunshan program, especially in terms of the post-COVID implications and what how it's faring now, and also with things like foreign students coming and taking part. Yeah, well, I've been with Duke Kunshan University for seven years now. 
So I've been here helping to build the university from the ground up. And we've gone through a lot of different phases. It's, it's been a very, as you can imagine, a very challenging project. First, just to get the university up and running, to start the, uh, launch the undergraduate degree program, which we did in 2018. And then we, since then, we've been steadily building up our student body. So our first uh, class of students is slated to graduate with their um, degrees in a month or two I'm not sure how that graduation ceremony is going to take place, but I, I think you can bet it's going to be an online ceremony at this point. Um, um, so most of my colleagues, almost all of my colleagues, uh, the fa fellow faculty are teaching online now. Um, they're living, they're sheltering in their own homes and neighborhoods here in Quinshan. We do have uh, a few dozen faculty and staff members living in Shanghai. And they've been, you know, as we mentioned earlier, they've been going through a much rougher time of it than our colleagues in Quinshan. Although it hasn't been easy on our colleagues in Quinshan either. Um, this just, you know, gradual shutdown of, of uh, everything has taken its toll here as well. Um, but I think we've kept up a lot of camaraderie. I've been really pleased to see the levels of camaraderie in, the, in our WeChat groups and, and our online conversations, uh, people cheering each other on, uh, helping each other out with issues that they're facing. So I think it's a really wonderful community that I'm a part of here. And it's one of the things that keeps me going. And also just, uh, like I said, teaching online now and being able to see and interact with my students on a daily basis has been amazingly helpful for me. Um, and I think for them as well to be to still be in contact with their teachers. Uh, now we have international students. Um, originally, they were on campus, of course. Um, our, our international students actually come for the entire four years. And like the Chinese students, they have the opportunity to spend a semester at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. That's our partner university. After the uh, pandemic began in February of 2020, um, pretty much all the international students went back to their home countries and started sheltering. And they all had different experiences, but, uh, you know, a lot of similarities. Um, and eventually, um, as Duke started opening up again, Duke was able to... Um, to gather some of those students. So some of the, our international students have been studying at Duke for more than one semester. And that's been a real boon. I mean, having that partnership has been amazingly helpful. And from, you know, from my conversations with my advisees who are there and my, my students who are there at Duke, they've been having a wonderful time there. You know, there have been students who have been stuck in their own home countries for various reasons, and that has been very difficult, very challenging for them. Uh, we're doing what we can to try to help and support them and keep them involved. So right now, you know, as as of um, in the past year and a half that I've been back in Quinshan teaching, it's been pretty much only Chinese students. I think there have been a, maybe a few Korean students on our campus, uh, but pretty much only mainland Chinese students on campus. Um, they've been pretty cheery, you know, I, I, um, things were going well. And, and I think we can't forget this, that in the past year and a half, we've had an amazingly normal time here in China compared to most other countries around the world. We cannot forget that, you know, um, things have taken a turn for the worse in the past few months, but we had tremendous freedom. There was live music, people could play in clubs, people could gather, 
go to restaurants, just live a normal life. So anyway, back to DKU. So yeah, our international students still have not been able to return to China. We don't know when that will happen. We were pretty optimistic until the past month or two, and now things have just, you know, have changed. So I think uh, DKU is undergoing a big, you know, reassessment now. What are, what are, what is the scenario for the future? When, when will we finally be able to reunite our community, which seems to be uh, dis- dispersing once again? Um, but I, I, I try to maintain uh, optimism, and I think we need to to see this as a long term project. You know, and and uh, eventually things are going to get better. Well, Andy, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your experience. I. Like everybody, we hope that the outbreak in Shanghai comes under control very soon, and of course that you're reunited with your your wife and family uh, very even even sooner if possible. And I really want to thank you for coming on today. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure, and I hope to come on again sometime to your show when I actually have something to promote, like a book. Well, we'd love to get, next time you're you up in Beijing. We'd love to have you come on live, and hopefully at some point I can you know be in the same room with David and that kind of thing, and things will return to normal. As you said, we've been quite fortunate here in China in terms of the last couple of years, although we are going through a little bit of weirdness right now. I was, you know, we have some vacation time coming up and definitely not going to Fiji. I was going to try to go to Fujian. That didn't work. Then I was going to do a staycation in Chaoyang District. And the hotel <laughs> is now being locked down. And so I think I'm going to just spend it on my couch in my own personal unenforced lockdown. Andy, thanks so much. David, thank you for, for zooming thank you. in. Yep, thank you, Jeremy. All right. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. We can't stay light outside the windows. We will not give up the fight. We won't give up the fight. For one day we must be free from captivity.